This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Here we are again, listeners, with an upbeat program. In about 10 minutes, we'll hear an episode from Fear and Wonder, IPCC author Dr. Joel Gerges and top journalist Michael Green will interview IPCC experts on energy policy this time. Joel says, We actually don't need to wait for a magic bullet solution to be invented before we start mopping up the damage caused by the burning of fossil fuels and the clearing of land. So the IPCC's Working Group 3 report is basically a detailed guide for how we can rapidly reduce greenhouse gas emissions across every aspect of society to stabilise the Earth's climate. And probably the most significant finding of the report is that there are options available right now across all sectors that could at least halve emissions by 2030. But first I'd like to take you to an event outside the National Australia Bank headquarters in Sydney. Early in the morning, the bank was surrounded by kind-looking people with placards and bright signs, knitting nanas, move beyond coal, stop funding Whitehaven coal, that sort of thing. Because the NAB Bank has been revealed from a market forces um, new report to be the major sponsor and financier through many loopholes of the coal industry and notably Whitehaven Coal. Um, Move Beyond Coal was the organiser. The focus was on NAB bank staff and customers walking in and they started with a song. Why dig up coal with sun to spare we say why dig up coal oh 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 now bank you must move beyond coal but a bank so today we're stepping up our action even more by forming this symbolic human chain along the front of the NAB building. Um, and we're doing this because we want to start a chain reaction inside NAB in response to this bombshell new report that dropped yesterday. And we're demanding that NAB executives take action in line with this report, in line with the IPCC report, and in line with best interest for humanity and our climate. So my name is Sophie and I am a member of Move Beyond Coal Sydney East because I often feel like I'm in a bad dream where we're all just sleepwalking into climate apocalypse and yet new coal mines are being approved, financed and insured. The Banking Climate Failure Report confirms the eye-watering amounts of money Banks like NABs are putting into fossil fuel expansions at a time where the world's leading climate scientists are saying no more fossil fuels. So a few weeks ago, we hosted a webinar for NAB staff um, and it was amazing. We heard from uh, market forces and the IEEFA and they talked about how banks like NAB are able to fund new coal through loopholes in their climate policy, but also the risks that banks take by investing in companies like Whitehaven Coal. We heard from a Gomoroi man and land protector who talked about 
the devastating impacts of Whitehaven coal on Aboriginal communities. And we had incredible engagement from NAB staff. So if you're listening, I just want to thank you so much for your time and for being there with us. We really, really appreciate it. So we all know that uh, NAB sponsors the AFL, but NAB also funds coal. And the AFL fans don't know this. So my group has been heading to the Sydney Cricket Ground about an hour before the games, and we stand there with these big signs, and we fly it, and we tell people about what NAB are doing. We stand in the footpath of tens of thousands of people, and we get so many thank yous. We get so many people saying, I didn't know NAB did that. We get so many people saying, shame on NAB and we get so many high fives, and we'll continue to do that, won't we, Linda, for the rest of the season. We needed to make a point, because for the last eight months, I have done everything I could through the so-called proper channels. I emailed NAB, I emailed all of NAB's executives, I emailed all their board members, I reached out to the, the heads of departments on LinkedIn, I sent thousands of messages on LinkedIn and everybody ignored me. Yeah, and I called, I sent messages on social media, I eventually got into a meeting with the head of their so-called sustainability team and was greenwashed for a solid hour because they're saying, oh, read our climate policy, we are going to phase out thermal coal. But Yesterday, turns out they're not. It turns out that NAB is Australia's favorite bank for the coal industry. Dreadful. So what, what are you going to do? You tried the proper channels, it didn't work. So I thought, well, today I'm just going to sit. I'm going to sit in front of their doors and try to stop NAB staff from coming in because we wanted to stop NAB working while NAB works for fossil fuels. So, of course, NAB didn't like that. NAB got all the police and all the security people to meet us there. And we were lifted up by the arms because none of us are made of concrete. We are flesh and bone. And we were lifted up by the arms and we're told, ma'am, you have to move. Ma'am, you have to move. Um, but yeah, so we're going to stay here for a while longer till NAB gets the point. just outside the NAB bank and I found a father with his dear little boy. Yeah, so really happy to be here today and, and so good to see the community coming together and telling NAB loud and clear, enough is enough. You know, my boy is two and a half years old. He's got his whole life ahead of him and NAB, you've got to stop screwing it up for, for, for them and for the rest of us. So yeah, really hope they listen to us. How did you get motivated? What started you on this? Um, I mean, really just thinking about our collective future, you know, thinking about, you know, heat waves and floods and how it's going to disrupt the food that we can put on our plates, you know, like climate change is here and now and it's um, horrible and, and it's, especially since I've had my own kid, um, just thinking about what he's going to inherit, what sort of earth is going to, you know, be in front of him, it's frightening, really, really frightening. It seems sort of astonishing that we still export coal and gas, that really the pressure hasn't been felt in the financial world, they're still making record profits. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to take us keep doing actions like this for us all to keep coming together because money talks, right, you know, it's, it's, it's at the moment, um, you know, that's all they want to hear, so all they just want to keep making money um, and, and not really paying any heed to what scientists are telling us is that um, climate change is threatening all of our future. So, no, it's astounding to me <laughs> that the government, the corporate sector, um, don't seem to take this seriously. Yeah, I mean, we just got to keep fighting. We just got to keep fighting, <laughs> and and there's no alternative. We have to keep fighting until we win. I'm I'm at the outside the NAB impressive building, and they haven't been able to go into their building uh, very easily today because of all of these uh, protesters who are some of them are called knitting nanas, and I've got uh, four of them here with me. This one says she's a nurse. She said I was 40 years a nurse. Tell us your story. Oh, hello. I'm, yeah, I've been nursing for 40 years, which is um, quite remarkable because I still feel like I'm only 21. 
But um, yeah, so I've joined the Knitting Nanas and they're a wonderful bunch in my retirement. And um, just to those people out there that tell me to go and get a job, 40 years nursing and I'm a self-funded retiree. So I think I've done my time and now my, my new patient is, as my sign shows, is Mother Earth. So she needs some tender loving care and I'm here to give that. Thank you. Mother Earth is in the uh, intensive care department now. Well, actually, yeah, she's quite critical. I'm um, at the moment palliative. Palliative? <laughs> Please don't say that. Well, I think we are. I think we really do need to acknowledge the fact it is palliative at the moment and we need to step up the whole of humanity. Hi. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, Cathy, uh, that we've got so little time and yet here we are today and we find out that NAB is increasing its funding to fossil fuels. And not only that, they're greenwashing the whole thing by saying, oh no, 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 we're reducing our funding to fossil fuel projects. But in fact, they're tipping the money into the corporate funds and it goes from there. I mean, it, it's just shocking that these people are just so without conscience. And I just think it's really important that we get out in the street and have a go. There's very little time left. Do you feel there's a contrast between us little individuals now collected in this big movement, really? It's a global movement, but it's just little people against... It's like we're looking at steel and glass. I can't get an interview, for example, with them. They're, they're never forced to confront, really, the media who ask these hard questions. I, I couldn't get a NAB executive to face up to a nurse who says, look, the, climate, the planet is on palliative care. We're, we're facing the end because of your continued fueling of this. Do you feel there's a kind of big gap between us and them? Yeah, yes. When I retired in 2014, it was at the same time that my first granddaughter was born and um, there was a, a rep one, of the, one of the many reports from the UN saying that we just had to stop uh, mining fossil fuels and um, so I got arrested outside the uh, gates of Whitehaven Coal and um, that was eight, that little granddaughter's eight now so, and I really fear for her future, you know, it's um, terrible. What about you? You're new to the knitting nanas, but you're not new to climate change, I know you, so... Yeah, no, I've been active in the climate sphere, mainly from a science perspective, for a couple of decades now, and, um, but I have to say, I don't knit, and I'm not a nana, but I have found my people, this is a movement that is um, trying to help people see a different way, make sure that the message is clear, heartfelt, and from a personal perspective. And yeah, it's hard for people behind big steel and glass buildings to have to be accountable, but this is the only way we can do it. And connecting human to human is the way to go. Plus knit one pearl one if you can, but not compulsory, yeah. <laughs> Baking also helps, yeah. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn were actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around three billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2023. If you are a regular listener to the Climate Action Show, you will have heard me bringing you stories of campaigns and elections and films and books, all urging us to take climate action over the last 12 years. It used to be a big team with many people behind the scenes, plus on air. Carly and Kurt, Erin, Kay, Michael, Natalie, Nick and Matthew. But now it's just me, broadcasting from Sydney. I had to do it remotely during COVID and now that's, that's the reality. It's just me. I will be delighted when you phone in a donation to keep 3CR going. The phone number is Melbourne 03 
And you can give money online as well by going to 3CR Radiothon. This is Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. In this series, we're taking you inside the UN's era-defining climate report by the hearts and minds of the scientists from all around the world who wrote it. Joelle, today we're talking about the mitigation of climate change. So what we could do to minimise it and whether or not we're on that path. The jury has reached the verdict and it is damning. So this is United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres in the press conference for the IPCC's report on climate change mitigation. It is a file of shame cataloguing the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. He doesn't mince his words, does he? And next, we have Professor Greg Nemet. He was one of the lead authors of the report, and I spoke to him for this episode. There's kind of a dichotomy in the IPCC from people who see the real role of the IPCC is to alert policymakers that the world is on fire and light a fire under them to actually do something about it. We are on a fast track to climate disaster. Major cities underwater, unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, widespread water shortages, the extinction of a million species of plants and animals. And we need to talk about and urgency is not and the intensity of the impacts and how bad it's going to be if we don't do something. At this point, Joel, I was listening to Greg and I, I really remember clearly thinking, absolutely, Greg, right on. This is totally what I want the IPCC to do. And I have to say, like, that's not my perspective. That's not my theory of change at all. And then he said that and I was like, oh, oh, OK, I've got the wrong end of the stick here. That's that's not what Greg's trying to say at all. I feel like you need to empower people. If people hear bad news, they're often turned off. They're often turn their attention elsewhere or think about something more positive. And so, yeah, the problem is getting worse. And I agree with it. But I think the other part of it's important to emphasize is that the solutions are getting better. And that's a big part of the work that I do on cost reductions and adoption of technologies is they're way more affordable now. In a lot of cases, they're cheaper than fossil fuels without a carbon price, without subsidies. They're just beating them. So yeah, I think it is an important moment because the problem is getting worse. But we've got these solutions now that are just so much more affordable than they were. You're listening to Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. I'm Dr Joelle Gerges. I'm a climate scientist at the Australian National University. I'm also a lead author on the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I'm Michael Green. I'm a journalist and a friend of Joelle's. And in this podcast, we're exploring the life of these hugely influential IPCC reports and the kind of thinking and feeling that goes into them. In this episode, Joelle, as I said earlier, we're looking at the mitigation report. And as with the whole series, we're really only touching on the edges of what's a vast body of work. It's true, there's a really huge amount of work in this area, but it's so nice to be finally talking about this part of the IPCC report. Sometimes we can be overly focused on the nuts and bolts of the science and all of its terrifying impacts that we forget that we have many solutions to address the problems that we have that, that already exist, that could be rolled out tomorrow. We actually don't need to wait for a magic bullet solution to be invented before we start mopping up the damage caused by the burning of fossil fuels and the clearing of land. So the IPCC's Working Group 3 report is basically a detailed guide for how we can rapidly reduce greenhouse gas emissions across every aspect of society to stabilise the Earth's climate. And probably the most significant finding of the report is that there are options available right now across all sectors that could at least halve emissions by 2030. So is the path out of this big hole we're in through technological innovations or is it through reducing our use of resources in the first place? Today we're talking with Professor Greg Nemet, who we just heard from, he's from Canada, and Dr Yamina Saheb from Algeria, about two very different approaches to mitigating climate change. Good morning. We begin with the flood emergency in northern New South Wales with a woman still missing in the waters around Lisbon. Drenching rain and flash flooding causing a new emergency in our states. So, Joelle, last episode we began by talking about how there were huge floods on Australia's east coast in 2022, just as the IPCC report on the impacts of climate change was released. 
Well, about a month later, the next IPCC report came out and Australia's east coast was flooding again. For a town still cleaning up from unprecedented floods just earlier this month, this is yet another blow. Again, the timing couldn't have been more surreal. People had barely finished dealing with the devastation of the first round of flooding when another round of severe weather hit. My family in Lismore were still displaced from their homes and the local community was really stressed out about whether they should keep cleaning up or leave the area altogether. Yeah, I remember looking at the news and seeing people just kind of shocked that it was happening again. That is the word. It was shock. People really were in disbelief that, are you kidding me? Like, again? And they literally, literally had people had rewired their businesses and all this sort of stuff and then, oh, it's terrible. It was a nightmare. It was a chaotic time. It really was. You know, it was dominating the news as you've just, you know, played the clips. And then this report comes out basically showing all these solutions we have at our fingertips. And I think that is, it's really hopeful. So before we go back to Greg Nemet, I want to kind of recap on the lay of the land because I found it very interesting and illustrative to notice the kinds of researchers that work on the different parts of the IPCC report. So for the first volume, which you were a part of, Joel, there were lots of physicists and meteorologists and observational scientists who are kind of modelling and studying what's happening around the globe on different timescales. Yeah, so... It's probably the most detail-oriented group of people you're likely to encounter. And there's a reason why these reports only come out every seven years. It takes hundreds of these perfectionists that long to agree on the wording. Um, And then we come to the second part on impacts and adaptation responses, and they're often geographers and ecologists, and that's who we heard from last episode. And then when it comes to mitigation, we tend to have economists and social scientists, and they're looking at human behaviour and policy and the kind of technology we have and how that all affects greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, so this group is really quite different from the people who worked on the physical sciences aspect of the report. So working group three deals with the science of solutions or sustainability, if you like, and the policies needed to implement them. So I actually secretly have an economics degree from many moons ago. I don't know whether I've ever told you that, actually. And so this is kind of my part of the report, maybe. I know that there are lots of shades of grey in science, always, but I think it's really nothing compared with what we have in the world of policy and economics and all these questions about how change happens and how it should happen. So my name is Greg Nemet. I'm a professor of public affairs at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and I work on low carbon innovation. Greg studies the processes behind technological change. Like, How does it actually happen? I worked in the private sector for seven years after my undergraduate degree. And I was working in Silicon Valley. I worked on a dot-com startup. And then he got a job working for a think tank doing a study of innovation across consumer products, information technology, healthcare, and energy. And energy was lower by a factor of 10 on every metric we looked at, like on research and development spending, on employment of scientists and engineers, on patents. And I just was like, wow, this is What a waste. And I was surrounded by all these smart people, risky investment, willing to take a a jump on lots of different things, and yet energy wasn't happening there. And so that's what I went to grad school to do. And the question is, what I still work on is, how can we stimulate innovation in low-carbon technologies? And how did you get involved with the IPCC? I wrote a book on the history of solar called How Solar Energy Became Cheap. I was really studying innovation and how that worked, but over the course of the research on that book, solar really went from something that was kind of interesting and kind of fast moving, but not a serious technology. And by 2017, 2018, solar became so inexpensive that companies were building really large solar facilities and it was beating fossil fuels without subsidies. And then when the IPCC project started forming, you know, there were multiple chapters that wanted to talk about the solar story. Like any researcher, Greg's up to his eyeballs in detail. You know, I've been working on this solar stuff since 2002. So, you know, I would go into archives and find conference proceedings from the 1950s and figure out someone made a statement about it costs 
$200 a watt to make a solar panel. Okay, that's $1958, what is it today? So I did a lot of that. And then the next step was, okay, where do the cost reductions come from? So like how much silicon material do they use in solar panels? How much was it 30 years ago? How much is it today? And so trying to find each of those data points. So Greg spent years crunching the numbers on how solar technology costs have come down. But along the way, I started getting the sense that even though I had collected all this data and lots of other people did too, and the data sets were getting bigger and better and you could say more about them, I still felt like we were missing a really important part of the story. And so I did a completely different set of data collection, which was to go talk to people. And so when I wrote that book, I talked to it was like 75 people in 18 countries. And it, it really made it clear to me that there are important factors that weren't going to show up in the data just because we didn't have information about it. But when you talk to people in the industry, you keep hearing it again and again. Like, for example, one of the items that I came across was just how much that people moved around, like they traveled. There was one guy who grew up in Australia, got his PhD in Canada, traveled to the US to meet everyone in the industry there, then moved back to Sydney, bought a bunch of secondhand equipment from the US, started making panels, then hired students from China. Students went back to China, then started the solar industry there. Then they sold panels to Germany, Italy, Spain, and California. And then there's the money. Those early Chinese solar startups were funded by US pension funds, so retirement accounts for teachers, which were looking to increase their returns. And so it was just this global innovation system that really made things happen. Greg got to contribute his findings from this research to the IPCC report, both on costs and policy. One of the key findings of this part of the IPCC report is that renewable energy and battery technologies have undergone incredibly rapid changes in costs and implementation. So one of the statistics that really blew me away was that since 2010, the costs of solar and wind energy and batteries have decreased by up to 85%, which is hugely significant. And at the same time, there have been large increases in the deployment of clean energy technologies. So, for example, globally, the uptake of solar has increased by more than 10 times and electric vehicles by more than 100 times. And then we get into the reasons. And this is what I work on is like, how do we actually make that happen more or for other technologies? The IPCC report lists the kinds of policies that made a difference. So public funding for research, public funding for pilot projects, and also things like subsidies to incentivize people to buy them. So it was just really good to say, look, this is what did it. It wasn't just luck. It wasn't just markets. It wasn't just entrepreneurs, like those are important, but there was policy behind all of that. Another key point in this part of the report is that it's actually the small scale technologies that are moving the fastest. In contrast to what I was taught in graduate school, which is, the energy system's gigantic. The climate system is huge. To make a difference, you have to go big. And the only way to go big is with large-scale technologies. And so the implications are, if you're serious about climate change, you get serious about nuclear power plants, or you get serious about carbon capture at large coal and natural gas facilities. Stuff like wind and solar is fun. It's, you know, looks neat, but it's not a serious solution because it's too small. And what like me and others looking at all the data shows is that the small stuff goes faster. It grows faster. It learns faster. That means the costs come down faster. And, you know, I think it's pretty intuitive to people. If you think of things like computers and how they've gotten cheaper and things like phones and how they've gotten more powerful, it's, it's dramatic and it's fast. And it's because we make millions of those things and billions of some of them. And that's what we're doing with solar panels. And that's what we're doing with wind turbines. And that's what we're doing with electric vehicles and heat pumps and LED lighting and a bunch of small things like that. And they're all playing a really big role. And the big stuff is just going slowly, like large nuclear power plants or carbon capture plants. And so it really has changed my thinking that I think it's going to turn out that small unit scale technologies are going to turn out to have a larger impact than large technologies. You're listening to Fear and Wonder. We'll be back after a short break. 
Fear and Wonder is proudly brought to you by the Climate Council. My name is Professor Leslie Hughes, and I'm a former IPCC author and one of the founding councillors of the Climate Council. Back in 2013, thousands of Australians chipped in to create a new independent and community-funded organisation after the Abbott government abolished the Climate Commission. Since then, we've played the important role of being Australia's own independent, evidence-based organisation on climate science, impacts and solutions. Our vision is that by 2025, Australia's emissions are on a steep downward trajectory with projects and policies in place to see us cut emissions 75% by 2030 and achieve net zero by 2035. This is not an easy task, but we believe it can be done. It requires a major shift in action and attitude from all levels of government, industry, business and the community. To find out more about how you can catalyse action on climate and support our campaigns, please visit climatecouncil.org.au slash the conversation. Okay, we're back with Fear and Wonder. If you're enjoying the show, please rate it and review it and share it with everyone you can. So, Joelle, in this episode, we're dipping our toes into climate change mitigation. So Professor Greg Nemet was just describing how policies like public research and funding and subsidies stimulated the dramatic decreases in costs for solar energy. But is more technology the answer? I am um, Yamina Saheb. I lecture at the Institute of Political Science in Paris, uh, Sciences Po Paris. And my daily job is about analysing energy and climate policies and mainly climate mitigation policies with the aim of improving them. Yamina's research relates to the idea of sufficiency. And this IPCC report was the first time that that idea had been included in a comprehensive way. I am always pleased to talk about sufficiency because it's for many people, it's unknown. So Yamina was a lead author on the buildings chapter, but she contributed to many other parts of the report, including an extra section on the modelling of mitigation scenarios. But to understand what she means by sufficiency, I think it helps to go back to her childhood in Algeria. I grew up in Algiers, in the capital city, and I grew up in a nice part of Algiers. During the French time, it was called the Le Petit Paris, small Paris. I am from middle class, but I was raised with the idea that we should not waste food, we should not waste water, we should not waste natural resources. In Algiers, so it's located in North Africa, and we had the drought for, for several years. I remember when I was a teenager, we had water issues. So we had to organize ourselves to address the challenge of water rationing. We did not have the word for not using the word sufficiency in my family or in, in Algiers. I was not hearing this word. It was just about the, the fact that you don't have the right to waste natural resources. This is, this is what I learned. So for me, when later on they came to Paris and they discovered the concept of sufficiency, then I thought, oh, this is the normal thing that I was used to do. There is nothing new. But then I realized that there is no scientific evidence about that and that the knowledge was lost mainly in industrialized countries. So the IPCC defines sufficiency policies as a set of measures and daily practices that avoid demand for energy, materials, land and water, while delivering human well-being for all within planetary boundaries. In French, we use the word sobriété for sufficiency, which would be sobriety, but it's not what the English people use. So sufficiency is not a new concept. It's a very old concept in reality. You, you can find this in all old civilizations. But with industry, we became more technology-oriented people. We were raised with the belief that technology can do everything for us. Whatever issue you are facing, technology will solve the, solve the problem. So that, that's why we lost the knowledge how to deal with challenges without technologies. In Yamina's first engineering job, she was optimising heating and cooling systems in buildings. My professor at that time, she told us that each time you are called to put heating or cooling system, so this means that the building was badly designed by an architect and then your expertise will allow to correct the mistake by putting in place heating or cooling system. 
And of course, when you do that, this means that you take more resources because you need to take resources for your heating and cooling system to build it. And then you also need energy resources to run your heating or cooling system. And it happens that historically, the energy sources that we have been using are fossil fuel sources. So they have an impact on climate change. So basically, the starting point is that the building is wrongly built and you think you are coming up with a solution to correct this mistake, but your solution will trigger so many other impacts that are not sought at all. So what Yamin is talking about is an approach that short circuits the need for energy in the first place. If you take, for example, in buildings, old buildings have been built by considering the surrounding environment and the local climate. And this is why, for example, if you go to Spain, it is very, very warm, Spain. But the old buildings in Granada, for example, when you are inside, even in summertime, you don't need an air conditioner. While for us, we were raised with the idea that you need a cooling system or heating system. And we cannot even imagine building differently. And, and maybe what sufficiency is about is about not only creating new narratives, but it's also about rethinking, reshifting the brain, how the brain thinks. In the context of building sufficiency in a wealthy country, it could include things like repurposing unused existing buildings or prioritizing the construction of homes that can house more than one family or reducing the overall size of homes. It's a big cultural change, right? Like, I can see why she says that it's about shifting how our brain thinks. Yeah, look, I think it is probably a really big cultural change for people in the West, but in other parts of the world, people are already doing these things. And, and these are things we just have to get on and, and actually do. And when you look at the IPCC's, you know, statistics on this, it basically says that across the building, transport and food sectors, we can reduce emissions by between 40 and 70% by 2050 with sufficiency measures, which is huge. And this relies on avoiding long-haul aviation, shifting to plant-based diets and improving the energy efficiency of buildings. And they also say that wealthy people contribute disproportionately to greenhouse gas emissions. So there's huge potential here for the reduction of emissions while maintaining a really high standard of living. I think that there's some people for whom that idea is just not appealing at all, right? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Because now people are, are so far removed away from how, you know, they might have a product in their house, but they don't know, you know, the full chain of events that led to that mm. development of that product and the embodied energy associated with, with it. And also think that I think in this era of complexity, people are returning to these simple things. A lot of people are trying to grow their own food and all that sort of stuff. I actually think people are yearning for it. Mm. I think life's too complicated. And I think there are a lot of people that want to get back in touch with those basics of life. When I was growing up, there was that old sustainability motto, which was reduce, reuse and recycle. And what Yamina is talking about here makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, like I agree. It's, it definitely sounds like something that needs to happen for equity reasons, I think that there are some people that do this voluntarily, but not enough people. So how is this sort of change going to happen? So actually, I think there's a little story from Yamina's life that illustrates her thoughts about how it might happen. So when I contacted her first, she didn't reply for a little while to me because things were a bit chaotic while she and her family were renovating. I was curious, given your interest in sufficiency, what did you do with your renovation? So there is not much you can do in Paris as an individual for your renovation in terms of sufficiency because we live in an area that is our facade is protected. It's a multifamily building, so you need an agreement of all the families living here, which is impossible to get. Yamina did manage to insulate her apartment, but the heating in the building is controlled centrally and their bills determined according to their floor area, not their heating needs. And so is that a kind of illustration of the importance of public policy rather than relying on individual action? Exactly. And when I did the renovation, it's just to have a case study, a real case study, about the limitations of what individuals could do. I will ask to have a meter for my heating consumption because there is no reason for me to pay for the heating of other people who did not insulate their homes. In terms of energy gains, it's not as big as if we would have done the full building, actually. And the cost would have been lower as well. If it would have been 
required by law and we would have had scheme to help people to have the overall building, then it would have been a different story. So in the case of France, I calculated a few years ago, we don't need more public money to renovate the overall stock, but we need to use the public money differently. There's so much to say about this stuff, right, isn't there? Because from my point of view, I'm like, yes, there is some individual responsibility here and we can make change individually, but also we're living within larger sort of structures that force us to live certain ways or make it difficult not to. And so in that bigger picture also, I feel like no one makes money from people not buying things. So that's a reason why it isn't happening. I think that's what appeals to me about what Yamina's talking about here, because I think she is arguing that there could be public policy measures to help to create some of these kinds of changes across the board rather than just relying on people to make haphazard changes if they're interested. You don't want to let policymakers off the hook. You don't want it to just be the individual's <laughs> responsibility because it isn't enough. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I think they have to both go in tandem. One thing I came across when I was researching this sort of stuff in terms of social change for, for my book was that you only really need 25% of a population to shift the social norm. The IPCC talks about all levels of, you know, government all the way down to individuals. And so we have you know, a, a huge swag of things available to us in terms of trying to address this. I mean, what we're talking about here is huge, but I think it's also the opportunity for really big wins without a huge amount of um, inconvenience for people's lifestyles in many ways. Another way of thinking about sufficiency might be to contrast it with two other kinds of change that Yamina talked about. So in the IPCC report, they discuss something called the SER framework, and that's sufficiency, efficiency, and renewables. It's a little bit similar to the idea that you talked about earlier, Joel, which was reduce, reuse, recycle, in that the SER framework is also a hierarchy. You start with sufficiency, then go for efficiency, and then renewables. Whereas Yamin actually thinks that at the moment, sufficiency is the bit that we're largely missing. In climate mitigation policies, they are all technology focused. So they are either focused on efficiency, efficiency, which is an incremental improvement of different technologies, which is reality. However, each incremental improvement requires more natural resources, which means that you create greenhouse gas emissions elsewhere. Yamin is actually making a really good point here. So it's like investing in a more efficient fridge, which is great, but you still need to buy a whole new fridge to get that gain. And then the other policies are decarbonisation of the supply. Decarbonisation of the supply, it has always been about replacing fossil fuels, which are the polluting energy sources, with clean energy sources, with renewable energy sources. But in reality, given that our energy demand has been increasing all the time, we never succeeded to reduce it really. So all the renewable capacity, the additional renewable capacity has been used for the additional energy demand that we had. So we have not been able yet to displace fossil fuels with renewables. So again, Yamin is making a really important point here, saying that although we're using energy more efficiently, we still have high levels of overall consumption. So our demand for electricity is still increasing and we're not removing fossil fuels from the energy supply on the scale that we need just yet. So she's arguing that efficiency and decarbonisation aren't enough. But actually something that I found really interesting is that within the mitigation report, there are these contrasting ideas and approaches. So while the part on buildings and also the part on the sort of demand responses like consumer behaviour talk a lot about this idea of sufficiency, it isn't actually included in any of the models of mitigation pathways. So the sets of policy measures that could take us on the kind of trajectories that would keep us under two degrees. So the mitigation pathways modelled in the IPCC report looked at so-called shared socioeconomic pathways that consider different policies, technologies and economic development pathways around the world all the way out to the end of this century. Uh, when you look at all these scenarios, there are no sufficiency measures in these scenarios. And it's just unbelievable that given the climate crisis, given the situation we are facing, the existing scenarios, the scientific community does not include sufficiency measures, which we estimated for the chapter on the demand services, chapter five of our report. We estimated that the mitigation potential for demand side could go up to 70%. So this potential is neglected 
not considered at all. Then what happens is that when you don't consider this potential, so you end up in 2050 not decarbonized. You cannot decarbonize your economy. All the scenarios have what is called overshoot. So overshoot means breaching our global targets, then coming back down as climate policies around the world are adopted. And then, because we are technology-oriented people, we were raised with technologies, so what, what they do, the scenario builders, they imagine carbon capture and storage technologies, uh, air uh, carbon capture, different uh, carbon capture technologies. Carbon capture and storage refers to trapping the carbon dioxide emitted by things like gas or coal power plants. And then there's carbon dioxide removal. And the way that's modelled is one of the most controversial things in this report. So carbon dioxide removal involves capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then storing it on land or in the ocean or under the earth or in products. So that could be things like reforestation or making biochar or using biofuels with carbon capture and storage or direct air carbon capture. So just like finding a way to pull carbon dioxide out of the air and store it durably. And they imagine that we will decarbonize with these carbon capture technologies, which is just not possible. We know that it's not possible because then when you look at the carbon capture solutions project that has been put in place, our countries have put a billion of euros in this project, but most of them are failure. And what is captured is very, very low compared to the investment. So what she's arguing is that we have a whole range of other policy measures available which aren't being modelled. And instead, the models are relying on carbon removal, on the idea that we overshoot our targets and then we claw it back by 2100 with the hope that those technologies become available and usable in the future. This IPCC report is the first time where we show the potential for demand reduction. And it's the first time that the concept of sufficiency is included. So this means that we have a potential to reduce emissions if we act upfront instead of relying forever in technologies and especially in unproven technologies at a global scale. But this gives me hope that we could decarbonize our economies. She says that if we're going to decarbonize, we need to not only completely transform our policies, but also the way we build these scenarios. The scenarios for the future are based on the current policies. They just make them more stringent. They do not imagine breakthrough in policies. What sufficiency is, is breakthrough in policies as well. But this is not yet captured by scenarios. And the fact that it's not captured gives me hope because this means that the potential to reduce emissions is still high. I should say, actually, on the critique that Yamina offers about carbon removal, Greg Nemet is also looking at innovation in carbon removal technologies. The modelling in the IPCC report that says if we're going to stabilise the climate, we're going to need to do substantial carbon removal by mid-century. And so there the question is, how could we do that? How could we do that justly? How could we do that uh, economically efficiently? How could we do it environmentally benignly? And then also, how can we do it fast enough, like to do enough carbon removal to remove like 10% of what we put into the air every year now uh, would be a tremendous scale up. And so, you know, given my work, I kind of say, well, how would it compare to how we scaled up solar or wind or electric vehicles or cell phones or other technologies? And it turns out it's, it's within the range of all the other stuff we've done, but it's very much at the high end. Yeah, it's like a, it's sort of imagining into the future, something that like, to me, I listen to that sort of stuff and it's just like, it seems impossible, but y- your case is, well, there has been examples of fast change. Yeah, certainly 15 years ago, people said, we're going to run 3% of the world's electricity on solar by 2020. People would say that's impossible. Like, it's not sunny all the time. There's winter. It's too small. But that's what we're doing today. And it really, the way it's growing, it could easily be 50% in the next couple of decades. So yeah, some things that seemed impossible sometimes turn out to actually work. So relying on historical analogs and saying, why? Why was it that solar was able to grow so quickly from something so tiny? Why are electric vehicles growing in the same way? Could direct air capture or biochar, could they do that? Or is there something different about them that makes it need some other model or some other mechanism? Or is it just not possible because 
there's something about them that's going to slow it down. So yeah, those are the questions we're working on and asking in our in our current research on that. Greg was part of a team that just put out a big report about carbon dioxide removal, and they found that right now, 99.9% of carbon removal is afforestation or reforestation or management of existing forests. So the other methods out there, like bioenergy, which would be biofuels, but then capturing the carbon dioxide emitted when they're burned, or direct air capture, which is just pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, those are virtually non-existent and there aren't really any actionable plans for developing them, which is something that we would have to do immediately because at the moment we're assuming they'll play a major role in keeping us well under two degrees warming, which is what the world signed up for with the Paris Agreement. Obviously something doesn't quite add up here. So advances in carbon dioxide removal need to materialise really, really quickly. But as Yamina was saying, that's not going to happen. So we need to use other ways of reducing emissions because we can't rely on non-existent carbon dioxide removal technologies to save the day. Greg is also thinking about some of the same kinds of things that Yamina is, about how to reduce consumption, not just make it more efficient or power it with renewables. So on one hand, there's stuff that's hard to reduce emissions on, like aviation, agriculture, and industry. So that's a big reason why we need to do some carbon removal. At the other end would be like, well, maybe we just don't need as much energy as we think. Maybe there's ways that we can reduce demand for energy that leads to attractive lifestyles, appealing cities, new services that people haven't had before, and yet still have less energy consumption. And so that's another work I'm doing. And there's, you know, there's a technological component to that, that, you know, is about new devices and digital technology helping with a lot of that, like shared mobility. Not everybody needs to have their own vehicle. So you can use, you know, technology, some of which we already use that vastly reduces the resources that are needed. Greg's obviously got a different way of approaching that problem than Yamina, but it's interesting that he's thinking about the same kind of thing. Mm, It is. There's also behavioral change that is important as well. And so that's something I'm working on, but also working with new people and learning a lot about too, is like, how does the psychology work that leads people to choose low meat diets or to switch to public transportation or to bicycling or, or, other, or smaller footprint on their homes and things like that. And I think to me, I'm more and more convinced that we can't really get there in terms of a a stable climate where things work well and they're fair without finding ways to reduce our energy consumption as well. Okay, Joel, so I want to test out something on you here. While I've been working on this episode and thinking about mitigation scenarios, thinking about the future, I have been pondering something that I'm calling the terrified to calm continuum. So, On a day-to-day level, I'm actually quite a cheerful person, but there is something very appealing for me, both kind of intellectually and emotionally, about the kind of more concerned and critical stance that Yamina seems to take about where we're heading. And so I'm wondering where you are on that continuum, Joel. Are you terrified or calm or somewhere in between? Look, for me, I probably wouldn't think about things in terms of being terrified or calm. I'm neither of those things, really. I would probably consider myself a realistic optimist. So I appreciate that things are probably going to get worse before they get better, but I have faith in humanity's ability to sort this out if enough people care. So look, if I if I actually do delve into feelings of being completely overwhelmed by fear, I mean, people like me just can't get on and do the actual work and the science that we need. So that's not a helpful way of thinking about things at this moment in time, but I'm certainly not calm either in the sense that I don't, you know, sit there feeling really at peace with where things are in terms of the state of the world right now. When I hear about overshoot and relying on non-existent carbon removal technology, I must say I do shift over a little towards the terrified end of the continuum. So I thought I'd turn to Greg for a final word of encouragement. So the the kind of positive outlook that you take on it, like trying to focus on on solutions or examples where we have had some success, why do you choose that approach? Like, how, how do you kind of get to that? Well, I, you know, it's fine. I had to do a graduation speech a couple of months ago here. I used a 
quote from uh, Karl Popper, I think, who said something like, we have a moral imperative to be optimistic because we're agents. Like, it's not like this climate change or this energy system is getting done to us. It's like we have a role to play here either as citizens, as scientists, as people who vote, as people who work in companies or work in governments, you know, it's all the result of human activity. And so what we do about it is also the result of humans too. So you kind of have to be optimistic for some of this stuff because whether it's policy or technology, behavioral change, it might work. And the fact that it might work is a reason to be positive. So Joel, today we've been exploring these two kind of different approaches to how change might happen. One being that technology is going to come along to save us, or another being that we need to fairly radically shift our approach to how we live our lives and, and avoid the excess consumption or need for energy that, that's getting us into the trouble in the first place. I think we have touched on two important elements that are quite contrasting. And and I think they are really important to talk about together because one of them is something that people feel agency around. So they feel like they can do something about those behavioural changes around things like what you mean it was talking about with sufficiency, like do they really need that extra fridge or whatever, car, that, that idea about overconsumption in the West, particularly when developed or industrialised nations is huge. Mm. But then Technology obviously has to be a part of the solution because of the scale of climate change and and we can't just sort of tackle it alone. But obviously all of these things need to be happening in tandem and I think that's really the take-home, I think, of this. But as I said, it's really understanding that all of these approaches exist right now and, and we don't have to wait. We can still develop those technologies in the future, but we have major work to do ahead of us in terms of decarbonizing in this coming decade. Yeah. The question for me that lingers, having come all the way through this episode, is whether the sorts of policies that Yamina's talked about in limiting consumption and reducing energy demand can be introduced and how they would be introduced, or whether we'll continue with the sorts of policy approaches that are less disruptive to our established economic order in the short term. Fear and Wonder is produced by me, Michael Green, and co-hosted by Dr. Joelle Gerges from the Australian National University. With sound engineering and design and extra wisdom from John Chia, script editing by Nicole Kirby, thanks to the show's executive producer, Ben Clark, and the conversations editor, Misha Ketchell. Fear and Wonder is sponsored by the Climate Council. We recorded on Wurundjeri land at the State Library of Victoria. Original music in this episode by Seapelt. Thanks to The Conversation for permission to broadcast Fear and Wonder. And thanks to Move Beyond Coal and all the groups they've inspired to take such creative action to stop NAB funding coal. You can join them by looking up Move Beyond Coal, which is in every state of Australia. I think they have many small groups. Last week, I was very happy to hear that the Climate Action Show has nearly made its Radiothon target. We've only got about $200 to go, so you can still phone in a donation or go to the 3CR website and click on the Donate button, which gives you details. So far, we've received $2,300. And these are some of the people who have kindly given us. They are the wide awake people who realise what community radio does. Thank you to Sue Abbott in Scone, Jim Spithill in Ashburton, Juliet Fox in Collingwood, Fiona Bennett in Mossman, Fahima Badrulhisham in Maroubra, Peter Sainsbury in Darling Point, Susan Sharp in Caulfield South, Liz Bolton in Creswick, Amanda King in Marrickville, Joe Malignani, Gardenvale, and Laura Carmody in Kingston, Tasmania. Also, thank you to David Robinson in Dulwich Hill, Jane Rudman in Beechworth, and Meg Clancy in Castlemaine. So all over the country. And thank you so much to those people. They really know where the action is. My name is Vivian Langford. 
Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or card. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. 